Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 642 for the 12th of May, 2019. Email continues to be the most common vector for distributing malware and attached documents slip by defenses all too often. In short circuits, have you received a message from someone who says that he's broken into your computer, has embarrassing pictures taken with your computer's camera, and will send them to each of your contacts unless you pay? Oh, and by the way, he has one of your passwords, too. Well, it's a fake, and we'll consider how it works. Windows 10 version 1903 will be pushed out to computers sometime this month, and Windows Insider members already have it. Wouldn't it be nice when you need a copy of a document to have a scanner in your pocket? Actually, you do have a scanner in your pocket, and Office Lens makes it more useful. In spare parts only on the website, Adobe has added some new features to its cloud-based color application. And if you sometimes use your browser's incognito mode, it's good to understand its shortcomings. Opening email attachments from people you don't know is unwise, but research suggests that nearly half of the people who receive such attachments will open them. That's troubling. Because many computer users are aware of dangers posed by executable files and zip files, cybercriminals have moved on. Most attacks are now based on infected document files. Researchers at Barracuda Networks say that 48% of all malicious files detected in the last 12 months were some kind of document, and more than 300,000 unique malicious documents were identified. You'll see a picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week of a message I received. It claims to be a purchase order, but I don't manufacture anything, and it's from somebody I don't know. The attached PDF is inside a zip archive. So anybody who's even half awake should recognize that for what it is, a scam. Barracuda reports that document-based attacks are increasing at an alarming rate. In the first quarter of this year, 59% of all malicious files were documents, compared to about 41% in 2018. Cybercriminals use email to deliver documents that contain malware. Either the malicious code is hidden in the document, or a script that's attached to the document downloads the malware to the computer. The Barracuda Networks report shows an example of an email that includes a file named to make it look like it's an invoice. The file has a doc extension, so it looks legitimate, and the message uses invoice for services as the subject. One potential giveaway might be that the recipient has never heard of the sender, isn't expecting an invoice for services. Still, a message such as this arriving at a corporate accounts payable department might be sufficiently convincing that the recipient would open it. Systems that attempt to identify and quarantine such messages use multiple procedures. Software engineer Jonathan Tanner at Barracuda describes them. Blacklists can be effective, he says, because IP addresses are limited and an IP address might be used long enough that software can detect and blacklist it. 
Even with hacked sites and botnets, it's possible to temporarily block attacks by IP once a large enough volume of spam has been detected. Second, he says spam filters and phishing detection systems look for subtle clues and then block messages and attachments that are suspect. These messages are held in quarantine so they can be retrieved if they are legitimate. Many malicious emails appear convincing, but automated systems can identify many of them. Third, malware detection is effective when emails have malicious documents attached, both those with embedded malware and those that reference files on remote computers. If the document attempts to download and then run an executable application, which no document should ever do, a protective application can shut down the process. Dangerous URLs can sometimes be identified by threat intelligence systems. And fourth, he says firewalls offer protection if a user opens a malicious attachment or clicks a link to a drive-by download. When the remote site attempts to send an executable file, a firewall can recognize the threat and terminate the connection. Malware is usually sent to lists of addresses that the crooks have obtained on the dark web. In the old days, crooks had to perform their own reconnaissance. Now they can just buy mailing lists that have been compiled for them. Email is the most common delivery method for malware, but some is still delivered via malicious websites. Social engineering and email work well together so the crook can convince the potential victim to open a Word or Excel or PowerPoint or Acrobat or PDF document that's been weaponized. Archive files such as 7Z and Zip are among the others. PowerShell scripts can be used. When the user opens the document, the malware is automatically installed, or an obfuscated script is used to download and install it from a remote site. Sextortion scams, and you'll hear more about those in short circuits in a moment, increasingly plant malware in addition to the attempted blackmail aspect of the message. short circuits, a friend sent a note with a question about an email he'd received. The message claimed that the sender had hacked my friend's computer and explained how he did it, and went on to say that my friend would have to pay to avoid having his porn files exposed and embarrassing pictures captured by the computer's camera sent to everyone in his address book. Oh my. Well, my friend doesn't visit porn sites and doesn't have any porn on his computer, he said he assumed it was a scam, but the message contained details about how the scammer got into the computer, and my friends had even gave a password that he'd used in the past, but not for the site listed. Although it is possible to plant malware that operates the camera and captures keystrokes on a computer, any decent anti-malware application would find it. This con game has been around for a while, and it can safely be ignored even though the scammer provided a password my friend had used. The password bit is a little newer, but data breaches have been common in the past few years, and passwords from these attacks are available on the dark web. That, doubtless, is where the password came from, and it's also why the password isn't current and wasn't associated with the site specified. The scam works because a lot of people do view porn online. Pornhub gets something like 75 million visitors every day, so there's a good chance that some of the people who receive the message have visited porn online, 
and then panic when they receive a message that seems to indicate that an intruder has been inside their computer. But a careful reading of the message will indicate that the scammer really doesn't know anything about the recipient. There are many variants of this scam. The one my friend received contained a password that he had once used. If the password specified is still in use anywhere, it should be changed, and now might be a good time to say again that passwords should be unique and robust for any important site you visit. You can consider important to be shopping or banking or any other site with financial information. Some of these messages contain attachments. Of course, you shouldn't open the attachment, but some research that I mentioned earlier in the program shows that nearly half of us will open attachments even if they are from somebody we don't know. And the email might appear to come from your own address or from a friend's address or even your work address. Well, spoofing email addresses is so easy that anyone can do it. Pay no attention to where the message came from. There are lots of people who would like to separate your money from you. Stay alert. Don't become one of the victims. About the time I think I figured out Microsoft's numbering system scheme, they released version 1903, which indicates March of 2019, in May. Shouldn't it be version 1905? Well, the 1809 version, September 2018, was released and then pulled back. So Microsoft is being more careful with this semi-annual release and plans to start pushing it out late this month, late May. And the Windows Update function does allow users to delay the update more easily than in the past. There are some pretty worthwhile features in 1903, and it's already been pushed out to some computers in the Windows Insider slow ring. One of the most interesting is a sandbox function that allows users to install new applications in protected areas so the new application can be more easily removed if it causes a problem. This is similar to installing in a virtual machine, except that the new installation will be deleted when the computer is restarted, so if the application causes no problems, you can install it normally. A small change fixes an uncommon annoyance. A computer that's used infrequently and then moved across several time zones can have problems with email if the clock is wrong by more than a couple of hours. You might think that Windows would just synchronize the clock and let it go, but security considerations keep that from happening. The Time and Language section of Settings now displays the date and time the computer was last synchronized, and there's a new Sync Now button that will get everything back in synchronization. Sometimes updates fail because of insufficient disk space. This is more likely to happen on computers with small solid-state drives that are used for both the operating system and data. Windows retains an old version of the operating system to allow the user to roll back an update if there is a problem. As a result, sometimes there's not enough space for a new update, and not even enough space to run the disk cleanup tool. Starting with version 1903, the operating system will ensure that there's always enough space for updates, caches, and temporary files. The reserved space will be at least 7 gigabytes. If you use the Windows subsystem for Linux, also known as WSL, an improvement allows Linux files to be edited from within Windows. 
Editing these files was likely to cause file corruption because Windows and Linux have vastly different ways to handle permissions. The Windows subsystem for Linux now has a process that handles the translations. Search has been ripped away from Cortana, and if you want to talk to Cortana, you'll need to put the Cortana button back on the taskbar. I've removed both Cortana and the search box from the taskbar. I rarely need to search the computer for anything, and when I do, there are better methods. So this is a change that looks more like a solution in search of a problem. If you have a tablet or a computer with a touch screen, you'll probably like a new touch keyboard feature that tries to figure out which key you'll press next and then makes the most likely candidates larger. This was a popular feature on Windows phones, and it generally did improve typing accuracy. The virtual keyboard still doesn't have a swipe function, though, and that's still a bummer. Windows Hello, which was added to Windows 10, allows users to log on using face recognition or a fingerprint. Users also have to establish a PIN, which Microsoft considers to be more secure than a standard password because it's stored only on the device. I disagree with that assessment, by the way. Users did need to create a standard password, complex, secure, and all the other standard requirements, which is just another password to forget unless you use a password manager. Starting with 1809, it'll be possible to log into your Microsoft account using your face or fingerprint if you link the account to a mobile phone. Overall, version 1903 doesn't have any blockbuster new features, but most of the new features will be welcome additions. A lot of people have decided that scanning documents and saving them on a computer beats saving stacks of paper. That's fine if you're in the office with a scanner most of the time, or have a scanner at home, but you might also have a scanner in your pocket. What is a scanner, after all, but a camera that's designed to take a picture of a piece of paper? A smartphone camera can take a picture of a piece of paper, so all you need is a way to process the captured image so it can be transferred to your computer. Well, Microsoft's Office Lens application does exactly that. Now, I should point out here that this isn't exactly a new concept, but Office Lens makes the process quick and easy. The free application is available for both iOS and Android devices. Images you scan can be saved as a PDF document, added to OneNote, uploaded to OneDrive, stored as a PowerPoint slide, saved as a gallery image, or be processed by an optical character recognition application, then saved as a Word document. When I say easy, well, take a look. You'll find some pictures on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I had a document from American Electric Power, so I put it on the desk and held the phone over it. Office Lens decided it was a document, not a business card. The other options, besides document and business card, are whiteboard and photo. The initial scan was the entire page, but then I moved the phone in a bit so it would capture only a table. Even though I didn't hold the camera exactly square to the paper, the application did a good job of adjusting it and squaring it up. The next step is to specify how to save the image. I selected OneNote so that it would be transferred to my cloud-based OneNote account, and from there it would be downloaded and synchronized to OneNote on my office computer. The next time you open OneNote, you'll find a new document in QuickNote, the ability to scan a receipt in a restaurant, a research document in a library, a whiteboard presentation at a conference, or any other document saves time and effort. 
Although Office Lens is intended to be used with Microsoft Office, much of the functionality still exists even if you don't use the connections to the Office Suite. You can install Office Lens on an Android device by visiting the Play Store or on an iOS device by visiting the Apple Store. No scanner is required for spare parts, but you do need a browser because it's only on the website. This week, Adobe has added some new features to its cloud-based color application. And if you sometimes use your browser's incognito mode, it's good to understand its shortcomings. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.